You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. Well, how about we pray as we open God's Word together this morning and continue to allow God to, to speak to us and guide us in the reality that the Bible, this whole beautiful book, a gift from God, is one big story that's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much for just the wonder of your word. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the way that your word is truth. We can rely on your word as the very foundation, the very basis of our very lives. So God, we pray today that as we continue our exciting journey in scripture, in understanding your big story, God's big story. We just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would help to make some things that we might think are very familiar come alive again to our hearts, God. Come alive by your Spirit, we pray. As we, as we open up your Word, as we reflect on, on accounts that maybe we're very familiar to us, Lord, help us to just tune in and invite you to speak to us in new and fresh ways so that these wonderful, beautiful things can have an ongoing impact in our faith journey today. Because, Lord, that's your heart. Your, your word is not just informative, it's transformative. It transforms our lives. And so we pray, God, that that would be so today. So Holy Spirit, guide me and guide all of us in your ways and in your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we, we took a very, very wide overview of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we were reminded that after God created everything, it was good. It was good. Everything was good. And then God created you and me and all of mankind. And God declared his creation to be what? Very good. Isn't that amazing? And Scripture says we're created in his own image as well. And I didn't touch on this last week, but I think it's really important to to really narrow down in what that actually means because that changes things for us, doesn't it? If we understand not only are we loved by God, not only are we declared to be very good by God, but we're actually created in his image, that can change things for us. And there's a pastor from the States, a man by the name of John Piper, and I think he explains it really well. He says, basically, to be created in God's image means that we are created as formal, visible, and understandable representations of who God is and what he's really like. Isn't that beautiful? You and I have been created by God in his image to exist as earthly reflections of who God is and what he's like. Isn't that powerful? And I just said, as when God created Adam and Eve, he declared, and us by extension, to not only be good, not only be good like the mountains, like the intricate plant life, like our wonderful animals that we go to zoos and marvel at, but he declared us to be a cut above, a step above again. He said, we are very good. And I just want, you know, if you're, if you're wondering right now, if you're questioning your value and your worth, hear this today. God sees you as very good. Very good. Very good. 
Hear that today. You are the pinnacle of his creation and he is pleased with you because, simply because you reflect him. Yeah? He's created you. He loves you. He thinks that highly of you. And so at this point in time, in the Garden of Eden, mankind enjoyed this beautiful, perfect, mutual, fulfilling relationship with God. Heaven and earth were quite literally united. Everything was exactly as God had intended for his world to be until it wasn't. Until it wasn't, and it wasn't when mankind really stuffed things up and they chose to sin. And we spoke about what sin actually is last week as well, when we choose to willingly disobey and live independently of God. That is what sin is. Sin at its core is a heart issue where we choose to live life on our own terms. And Adam and Eve's hearts, they hardened towards God. And because of that, sin crept in and they were separated from that perfect relationship with God. Because here's the thing, you know, God is perfect and utterly pure and holy. Yeah? That is who God is at his very core. And a God who's like that could not possibly draw near to mankind when they are the opposite. Yeah? It's like two ends of the magnet that just can't come together. Sin and sinlessness cannot exist together. And so from the moment that Adam and Eve chose to sin, this kind of snowball effect happened. And we saw that play out over these first, well, 3 to 11, post-fall, chapters 3 to 11. Sin entered, poisoned the hearts, not just of Adam and Eve, but every man, woman and child and brought ruin and destruction to God's perfect world and to humanity itself. And so these chapters that we looked at, 3 to 11, they really highlighted this downward spiral of sin. And I don't know about you, but I found that to be a pretty confronting read. I found that to be a pretty confronting thing to, to kind of reflect on. You know, sin entering and de- destroying God's perfect world, it, it kind of breaks your heart, doesn't it? And we know from Scripture... You read it continually through those chapters, God declaring how it's broken his heart as well. And here is the wonderful news. You know, while God was deeply offended and was deeply wounded by mankind's rebellion and rejection of him, he remained faithful. God is good. He remained faithful. God longed then, and he still longs today, to be reconciled with mankind. Every single woman, man, and child with us. And so in, the, in Genesis, we see that the structure is quite straightforward. Chapters 1 to 11 outline creation, us entering the world, the fall, and the sin issue. And then chapters 12 to 50 start to unpack God's solution to the sin issue. So if the first 11 chapters of Genesis highlight what happens when man chooses to disobey God and live independently of him, sin, the next 38 chapters in Genesis paint a beautiful picture of what happens when mankind choose to obey and have faith in God and live with him, albeit with plenty of ups and downs along the way. So I mentioned this last week. At the very end of Genesis chapter 11, we find one of those things that whenever we come to them, we love going through them in detail, don't we? 
genealogies. Everyone love those? No, that's right. We normally kind of come to it, at least I do, I'll admit, and, and you're tempted to just jump straight past, aren't you? But this one here is really important. We miss out so much if we jump past genealogies because this one is a genealogy of hope. It's pointing forward to how God's plan of redemption and making things right is actually going to unfold. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 32, and it talks about how God, God's going through this, this line of Shem over many generations, and this line, bit by bit, narrows down to one man by the name of Abram, who eventually, as some of us might know, was eventually renamed. God gave him a new name of Abraham, and for the sake of today's message, I'm just going to call him Abraham. Now, before I share about Abraham's life and we draw out some lessons from his faith example, I just want to raise a really important point when it comes to how we approach these kind of patriarchs of our faith, or some might see them as heroes of our faith. I don't know if you've done this before. I certainly have, and maybe I was even taught this at times growing up through Sunday school and things like that as well. But often we view these characters as heroes, as superheroes almost. We can look at Abraham, the father of our faith, or other characters in the Bible and almost kind of idolize them in a way and look up to them as some kind of so much better than me, I could never have faith like that kind of biblical character. Yeah? Has anyone kind of been there before? It's very easy for us to do. And, and even now, you know, probably you can think of messages where someone has encouraged you to be like David or be like Abraham or something like that. Let's, let me just make this really clear because this is so crucial in understanding the whole of God's word. Yeah? Every single human being recorded in the Bible is a fallen, sinful, broken human being, besides Jesus, of course. Yeah? Every single person. No one's perfect. Abraham and all the other fathers, as we'll see, they're not perfect either. This, this is something that we will see over and over and over again in God's story this year. Members of God's family do have remarkable moments. They even have remarkable seasons of resolute faith and just sticking with God no matter what, where they faithfully follow him and, and honour him. And they also have some remarkable moments of faithlessness and really unbelievable stupidity and sinfulness. Let's be real. You know, the problem is we kind of hear messages, be like David, and then we go, what? Commit adultery with Bathsheba? Or, you know, and, and we, can get, we can get kind of confused, can't we? So it's really important that we understand that the men and women listed in Scripture are just like us. They're just like us. God's family is full of fallen, sinful human beings who are just like us. These examples from Scripture are not to be followed in every single way. Yeah? Let's just make that straight. God is always the hero of every story. This is so crucial when we come to the Bible. 
God is always the hero of every story. God's the one who forgives. God's the one who redeems. God's the one who comforts. God's the one who shows grace. God's the one who heals. God's the one who brings breakthrough. God's the one who enacts justice. You know what I'm saying? God's the only one who is worthy to sit on a throne and have us come before him and look up to him and marvel at his presence and his example. And he is the only one that we could, should seek to follow and emulate in every single way. Where, and and here, here's the crucial thing too. We are to learn from the lives and examples of biblical characters. Absolutely. But here's the thing. Both what to do and what not to do. What to avoid. But the only thing that we model, if anything, is their trust in God. Yeah? Their faith. Their faith in God. We're to follow their faith example, not every single move, because they're fallen human beings after all. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's get back to Abraham. And that's a good transition to Abraham. Why? Well, when it comes to trusting God, Abraham, having faith... There's a reason Abraham is known as the father of faith or the father of our faith. Think about this. This is incredible. Abraham was a pagan. He was from the line of Terah. And Terah, Abraham's father, he worshipped other gods. How do we know this? From scripture, from other parts of God's word. Joshua Chapter 24, verse 2 says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. There you go. Abraham was most likely not a worshipper of Yahweh. He was most likely a pagan who worshipped other gods, just like his father. And I say most likely because there's nothing that definitively says that otherwise, but um, in a culture of a day where family ties were so strong and, and it, was a, it was a society in which respect and honouring your, your, your parents was so valued, it would be almost unthinkable for a son to reside still with a family and worship other gods and have other priorities in life. Does that make sense? So it's pretty sure to... You know, we can be 99% sure that he was not a worshipper of Yahweh. Now, the, the account of when God chooses to reveal himself to Abraham is remarkable on so many levels. Here's how Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 4, describes this divine encounter playing out. Here it says, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. God approaches Abraham, he listens to and hears what God says and he responds yes and he leaves. Just like that. You know, Abraham, this completely unlikely 
an obscure figure who's likely never even heard of this God, Yahweh, when approached by this God, he responds with faith. Yes, Abraham trusts God that he'll do what he says he'll do and uproots his whole existence to follow after this God. Now that, that is faith right there, isn't it? You know, that is faith in a nutshell. Rejecting what you think is best and going with what God says is best. Trusting him no matter what. As Hebrews 11, 1-2 describes faith, describes faith as being the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this was Abraham's experience to a T, wasn't it? He trusted that God, that he would do all that he said and bring about things that seemed, in a natural sense, to be impossible. And we're not going to go into it all today, but, you know, having a child when his wife was barren. Um, there's so countless examples from his faith that you can, from his life, that you can check out yourself. Now, let's not miss what a big deal this was for Abraham to uproot his whole existence here. You know, when God called him and asked him to go, he, it was not like today where we can just all of a sudden jump on an aeroplane and sell our stuff here and then set up shop and maybe even work remotely for our same workplace or something anymore. It wasn't like that at all. When God was calling Abraham to go, he was calling him to leave every single thing that was a source of security for him. Yeah? In many ways, it's kind of like a parallel with, with Jesus saying, anyone who wants to follow me must take up your cross. You know, like it's that kind of, um, you know, forget about your family, follow me kind of thing, almost. Family, place, wealth, this is what God asked him to, to lay aside in order to follow him. And this was, let's not beat around the bush, this was a risky, costly decision for Abraham to make. And yet, Abraham placed his faith in this God and he went. He trusted God at his word that he'd do what he said that he would do and he uprooted his whole existence, his family, to follow after God. I like how the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 11, verse 8 to 10. He says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham trusted God and believed that he'd bring about what he promised, that the designer and builder who is God could genuinely be trusted. That's faith right there. And look, we're not going to go into it today. As I, as I shared last week, this journey that we're on this year, we're taking a 30,000-foot view of many of these characters and many of these themes in Scripture. But Abraham is rightly referred to as the father of faith or the father of our faith because his whole story is one that is characterized by faith in God. You know, he wasn't perfect. He made many mistakes. He sinned. He questioned God's promises and ability to bring about these things in his life on occasions. 
And he even took things into his own hands. Servant girl trying to bring about a son um, with, with, his, with his wife's servant girl. But Abraham's story is one that is overwhelmingly characterized by faith in and faithfulness towards God. This really encourage you this week. Take some time to read through Genesis chapter 12 to 25. Read that and you'll see for yourself. You'll see for yourself that this is true, that Abraham is rightly a man of incredible faith. As theologians Arnold and Bayer suggest, you'll see how the great promises of Abraham's call are worked out in his life. There are many ups, there are many downs, and many questions about Abraham's life, his resolve, and God's faithfulness. But through the suspense and drama, the message is clear. God has established a unique relationship with this man and his family. He would certainly work out his promises to Abraham somehow. And today, I want to look at one of the most remarkable examples of how God worked out his promises to Abraham to highlight just how remarkable Abraham's faith was in our good God. And the event that I want to focus in on today starts at the start of Genesis chapter 22. So let's read, starting at verse 1. It writes, After these things, which was making a treaty with Abimelech, God tests Abraham and says to him, Abraham. And he says, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Okay, what, like, seriously, what, what is going on? God, this God who was promising to bless Abraham and give him a son, is all of a sudden asking Abraham to go and sacrifice this son that he's given him. What is going on? We hear this today and we're rightly confronted on on many angles, aren't we? On many levels. You know, we think of child sacrifice and we think that is abhorrent. That's barbaric, you know. But remember, I mentioned in the intro message to this series, we need to be careful that when we come to the text, we come not as our, our modern day 2022 Westerners with our understandings and our ideas of morality and what's right and wrong. We need to come as, as an ancient tourist to the text, basically. We need to come and immerse ourselves in the culture of the day to understand and better understand what's going on here. So Abraham and Isaac lived in a time when people worshipped many different deities and the worship for many of these different deities included child sacrifice, right? So let's just make that really clear here. This was something that regularly happened, horrifically, yes, but it was something that regularly happened in those days. And so as foreign as as this request is to our our eyes and our ears as we hear this and, and our minds as we wrestle with this, Abraham, while no doubt being a bit surprised and no doubt concerned, this is my, this is my son, this is my only son, this is how the promise is going to come, like, what's going on here? He would not have been anywhere near as confronted by this as we are in terms of child sacrifice 
at least. You know, um, I've, I was doing some reading on this, and, and one theologian said, you know, there's there's very real chance that basically Abraham thought that maybe this was a side of this God that I haven't learnt about yet. Maybe this is something. Maybe there's something to this. But I think as Tim Mackey from the Bible Project said, you know, Abraham had this, this reason to be concerned because God's very promise to Abraham to multiply his descendants and bless the nations was supposed to come through this child. Yeah? Come through Isaac. And here, God's calling him to sacrifice his hope, this hope in the flesh, in the form of his only son. Every single thing is on the line here for Abraham in this test of his faith. And yet, as Andy Patton from the Bible Project says, Abraham obeyed God's unexpected command. Why? Because he trusted God's promise and knew him to be good and trustworthy. God hadn't let him down yet, and Abraham had faith in this God that despite everything looking the way it was looking, that he still wouldn't let him down. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. So let's just pause here for a moment. Abraham trusts God, faith, and he walks on a path of obedience. He cuts the wood. He does everything that's required to sacrifice something. He cuts the wood. He goes to the mountain that God has asked him to go to. He takes fire, you know, he takes some embers and he takes a knife and he heads off alone with his son. You know, some people have suggested that the implication in verse 5 here suggests that Abraham doesn't think that Isaac would have to die. You know, he speaks to the young men who were with him and says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And this, this could be an explanation for it. It could be that he just had such faith and he was like, no, 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 God's going to provide and, you know, we'll be back in a moment. Or it could have just been that he was trying to save face in front of all these other people because he didn't know how he could explain that this is actually the act that he was going to have to do. You know, it doesn't really matter. Um, we don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. Just a little bit further on, when Isaac asks about, where's the sacrifice, Dad? Like, we've got all this stuff. We've got this stuff here. But, but where's, where's the sacrifice? This is where we really see, yet again, Abraham declare his resolute faith in God. Even with all of these things in their hands, the knife, the, the embers, the wood, as they're walking up this mountain alone, Abraham's genuine and resolute faith in this God comes to a fall. Uh, uh, to a fall. Verse 7, 
And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for this burnt offering? Abraham said, and this, this is amazing, he said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Isn't that remarkable? Despite everything pointing to Isaac's sacrifice and death, it seems here that Abraham didn't think that Isaac would have to die. Abraham continued to place his faith in God. Abraham continued to, as Hebrews 11.1 says, to hold on to the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Let's stop right here. This is so important. This is so important. Many of us, and I'm in this boat, for many, many, many years, kind of get completely thrown when we get to this point, where we get this image in our minds of Abraham having bound his son and standing over his son with a knife like this, don't we? We kind of think, gosh, what kind of father could possibly do that to a son? What trauma that child must have endured. Um, you know, how, what, how could he be prepared to go ahead and kill his son, his only son? And this part of the account does. It, it deeply disturbs us, doesn't it, if we're, if we're honest? But Abraham was prepared. He was prepared to slaughter his own son. But here's the thing. It's important that we recognize why he was so prepared to go ahead and slaughter his own son. Yeah? And unsurprisingly, it all comes back to faith in God once again. And this is where we need to see God's story as a collection of stories from all of Scripture. God's story does not just exist in the New Testament. God's story does not just exist in the Old. We've got 66 books full of rich biblical literature that speak to different stories, and it's all interwoven. And if we look at the writer of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews actually provides perspective on these events that happened all the way back here that isn't made explicitly clear in Genesis. So when we're reading God's word, we, need to, we often don't have all the... We're missing a few pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. So we, we look at this and go, how could he possibly do this? What kind of parent could possibly raise a knife ready to stab their father only to be... Uh, son, only to be interrupted by God until we understand and make the link with this story? So here's the insight that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Hebrews 11, chapter 17 Uh, Verse 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen very carefully. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you see that? Do you see why Abraham 
was in a position where he was absolutely willing to raise the knife and slaughter his own son, seemingly dashing his hopes of a future and the promises of God for this family of which he would be the father? Can you see why? Because Abraham had such faith in the goodness and the character and the power of God to be able to fulfill his promises that he believed that if necessary, God could even raise his son from the dead. Wow. That is some faith. He had such faith from the God that he believed that even if God wanted him to kill his only son, that he could then raise him back to life to fulfill his promises to him. What faith in God. What incredible faith in God. And this is another reason why Abraham is known as the father of faith. And you can read it in your own time. You know, the rest of the account shows how God responds to Abraham's remarkable faith and trust. God provides Abraham with a ram for the sacrifice, fulfilling what Abraham thought. Oh, God's going to provide us with a, with a lamb. It was a ram, but, you know, it's a sacrifice all the same so that his son could be spared. That's in verses 11 to 14. And then in verses 15 to 19, God beautifully reiterates his promises to bless Abraham and give him a family. What an awesome God. You know, there's so much that we could draw out of this passage today, but we won't. I want to... I wanna, I want to cross the bridge now. You might have heard that term before, but essentially what I'm talking about is we want to go from understanding the context back then to applying the reality of what God's heart is or the the truth or application of faith to our lives today. So that's what we're going to do now. Friends, I'm wondering, how do you, how do we respond when God calls us out unexpectedly to Go and do something. How do we respond? From my experience and from hearing many of your stories, I know that God often invites us to come follow him and do things that defy natural logic. Yeah? They seem unwise. They can seem completely foreign Sometimes God even calls us to do things that when we first hear of them, we have like a sick feeling in our stomach and we don't want to do it, yeah? Things that are costly, things that involve great sacrifice and may even result in us uprooting our whole lives, our whole existence to follow after him, just like Abraham. And sometimes God simply calls us to embrace smaller changes in life that are kind of smaller in comparison, but challenges that are still deeply hard for us to to make. Changes that are deeply challenging, things we find hard to embrace. You know, God might call us to make a complete career change. God might call us to change careers, leaving a career that we're quite comfortable in, we quite enjoy, in order to pursue another one that maybe even at first glance doesn't really seem that appealing to us or one that we're anxious about transitioning into. God might, and often does, call us to make peace with a family member who's been quite 
hostile and hurtful toward us for a very long period of time. Challenging us to be the bigger person, to to walk across the room and go and at least try to make peace, try to reconcile with that person despite our hesitancy to do so. God might call us to follow him by making considerable financial sacrifices in our own personal budgets year to year so that we can play a key role in funding the gospel being spread to unreached nations overseas through a missionary family like the Tobiases, for instance, who are coming and joining us next Sunday. In all these moments, like Abraham, we have a choice in how we respond. Do we respond in faith and trust God or do we disregard and even put off what God calls us to do indefinitely because we're, we're just really quite happy with the way our lives are going? Or even, and this one kind of hurts a little bit if we sit with it and, and let it really resonate in our hearts, do we disregard call because we actually don't want to do whatever it is he's asking us to do? How do we respond? Now think about this. Scripture says that Abraham was 75 years of age when God revealed himself to him. 75 years of age. In our culture today, 75 is considered, no disrespect if you're 75, but if you're 75, 75 is considered quite old to uproot yourself and go and do something different altogether. Yes? That's fair? 60 years. Maybe you're 75 or around that age right now and you know, you're, you're enjoying retirement. You're, you're enjoying the, the fruits of your efforts over many years. You, well, you haven't traveled the last two years, but you're looking forward to potentially traveling as you're retired, whining and dining, living a comfortable existence. Just, you know, how would you respond? How would you respond or how have you responded when God actually calls you to, to go, to uproot and go and embrace a new ministry opportunity that he has in mind for you? Would you or have you responded like Abraham and left everything to follow him? Or, it's challenging, but only we know in our heart of hearts, or would we actually refuse and stay put because that's comfortable, it's safe, it's what we know? Friends, faith, worship of God, trust in his goodness, ways and hearts for us, that is what God requires of all of us. It's all God requires of us, actually. All God needs from us is our faith placed in him. You know, God can work with our brokenness. Scripture is this beautiful unfolding story of how God still brings about his plans and his purposes despite us. That's what Scripture, you know, let's be real. How many times do these wonderful people, our beautiful brothers and sisters of faith, do extraordinary things and then compromise and just stuff things up? And yet, what does God do? He remains faithful. He still brings about his promises. He still, he cannot be stopped. 
And all God, God can work with broken people. And I tell you, I am glad personally that God works with broken people because I am a broken person too. He's quite willing to move in power despite our sin. All God needs for us is to trust him, to put our faith in him, just like Abraham did. Do you know why Abraham was considered righteous? Think about this. At this point in the story, Abraham exists in a period before the law was even a thing. Yeah? Who knows that in Old Testament times, you were declared righteous through sacrifice, through rituals, through cleansing processes to make you once again in right standing with God. Yeah? Well, did you know that Abraham, do you know why Abraham was considered righteous? Well, it's great. I love this. Genesis 15, 6, it says, this is why he was righteous. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteous in God's eyes. He was in right standing with God because of his faith. Because of his faith. Not because what he did or because what he didn't do, but because of who he placed his faith in. Isn't that amazing? Now, you might see a bit of a gospel parallel forming here, and you might have already seen it forming as we've gone on this journey, even this morning. But Abraham, at this point in history, pre-law, was in right standing with God through faith. And this is foreshadowing, in a sense, this is foreshadowing right back in these early chapters of Genesis what will one day be the central tenet in God's plan of redemption. The reality that mankind will only ever be declared righteous by God. Not on the basis of what they do or don't do, works, but on the basis of who they place their faith in. You know, we, anyone, if you're seeking spiritual truth today, this can be true for you as well. This is God's heart for you to know this personally as well. We can be saved and declared righteous only through faith in God and not by anything we could possibly do. And because we are, here's another beautiful link between new and old. As Paul writes in Galatians 3.7, we can become spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham members of God's own family. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now we're going to close and reflect a little bit deeper on these parallels as we share in communion together. So if we could have the welcome team come forward. We're going to, we're going to receive our elements, come forward and do that. And then we're going to reflect on how this story, Genesis 22, this story of Abraham and Isaac, actually points us forward to Jesus. So come forward now and let's, uh, let's come and receive our elements. And then-